Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I am your host, Bill Brewster. Thank you, as always, for joining. After this episode, we're going to take a short break, call it two to three weeks. I am very excited for the people that I have lined up, but I am traveling next week, and it takes a little while to get these things re-recorded and out. So bear with me, please, and thank you. This episode features Value Stock Geek. Value Stock Geek is not a name by birth. It is a pseudonym, in case you needed that help. He's a nice person. He's got a substack that he's writing. I think he does things for the right reasons. He's building in public. So, you know, long story short, I'm trying to help some people that are trying to do things in the right way as I perceive them, and he's one of those guys. So give it a listen. If you like it, I'm very happy. If you don't, then uh, come back for the next one. But I, I enjoyed listening, So and I, and I like him. He's a good dude. Anyway, this episode is sponsored by DeLupa. DeLupa is founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity into the investment process. DeLupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company-reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. DeLupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation. Analysts spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel. That's true. You can update it with just the click of a button. And more time synthesizing in the minutes after the print. Not something I need, but something that some of y'all may need. Delupa captures data from all company reported sources, including from footnotes, MDNAs, and investor presentations. Delupa's data sheets include gap to non gap adjustments, guidance, and all company specific APIs. Each data point is audited to the source for easy verification accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update your existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. Bulge bracket banks and major multi-managers are trusting Delupa for initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping their models up to date. Visit delupa.com forward slash business brew to create a free account and learn more about how Delupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. That is quite a read. Delupa is quite a product. I recommend it. As I've said, it's institutional. If you are at an institution and you're considering a product like Delupa, if you need something that you can look at historical financials and really trust the information, please check them out. It would help me. I think it might help you. And hopefully I can make a, a mutually symbiotic marriage. Anyway, as always, none of this is investing advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions. Do your own due diligence. Enjoy the episode. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to seeing you or talking to you indirectly when I return. All right. Take care. Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to be joined by Value Stock Geek, which is not his real name, but that's all you're getting today. A man that I think we have a fair amount in common. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I am well. I am well. I'm excited to talk to you. We've talked in the past, but I'm excited to do an interview and and talk about your Substack and what you're what you're trying to accomplish out here. So, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. What would you say your investing journey has begun like? I mean, we're we're not going to go into your background here because I know that there's sensitivity around that, right? But I have enjoyed watching you develop an affinity towards a little bit more quality, I guess, 
it probably reminds me of my myself, but I'd be curious to hear you in your own words talk about how you started investing and where you think you're going with it. Sure. So I started becoming interested in investing in the late 90s when I was in high school and I started doing day trading and things with the lawn mowing money that I was into. And then I discovered Graham and Buffett and I was in the value school for a while. And then I fooled around with things for a little bit with value investing for a little bit. And then um, once I started to save up more serious money, by the time I was in my like early 30s, then I started to um, get more interested in getting more systematic and getting a more robust, disciplined approach. And I was originally more into the deep value school of things after looking at basically the data and showing that that's what worked better than anything. And then I tried to implement that portfolio for a while. And I had some uh, some success. And then um, it was basically a Graham style, simple way portfolio. The strategy he outlined in the 70s were basically you buy a portfolio of companies with low PEs and low debt to equity ratios. And I added my own things to that, my own qualitative things, some other quantitative variables to put into it. And then I started a blog about it in 2016, mainly because I wanted to talk to people about it. I wanted to get myself out there. And I actually started to track that portfolio. And um, over time, I realized there were some limitations to that approach. So I noticed that once I was getting into the weeds of these companies, they were tended to be very like cyclical situations. So I became very obsessed with trying to predict the macro picture. Like, what if we have a recession this year and all of these cyclical names fall apart? Another limitation to it was the fact that I noticed that my results over like a 10-year period had pretty much matched small cap value as a factor. I could have mm -hmm. just bought like VBR or something or SLIV and gotten a pretty similar result. So um, that led me into researching asset allocation approaches with ETFs. So I do that with a lot of my money. And then for kind of my active piece where I'm selecting stocks, now I tend to focus more on higher quality names, mainly because I want to have the confidence to, to hold them for longer periods of time. And I do a mix of both. So I have my ETF asset allocation which I kind of pile my savings into. And then I have this active approach where I'm analyzing businesses and trying to get them with a margin of safety. How are you thinking about the ETFs that you are adding to your allocation? How did you, how did you go about picking, I don't know if it's geographies or factors or whatever? Yeah, so a major influence on me there was Harry Brown. Um, he developed the permanent portfolio and I thought that that was a pretty robust approach, but I thought it wasn't, far enough out on the risk curve for me. I wanted something a little bit more aggressive than um, having half of the portfolio in long-term treasuries and cash. But I took the principles from that and developed my own approach, which is basically 20% US small cap value, 20% international small caps, 20% gold, 20% long-term treasuries, and then 20% some globally diversified real estate. So I mean, some of the ETFs I use are like VBR, VSS, VGLT for long-term treasuries, SGOL and GLDM for gold. And then for um, global real estate, I'll use VNQ, VNQI, and uh, REET, uh, NYSHARES product. Do you worry at all about having the gold exposure through ETFs? No, I don't. Because I, those those ETFs, GLDM and SGOL, are backed by physical gold that's actually in vaults. The concern there would be 
if you were like a true gold bug, you're owning gold because you're worried about the entire financial system collapsing, at which point your ETFs will probably be worthless as well. That's not really why I own gold. I own gold more because it's an uncorrelated asset with US stocks that should go up over the long run and keep up with the inflation rate. It should do well when like the dollar is weak. I'm not owning it for total global financial collapse. And frankly, I think if we have total global financial collapse, gold won't really help anyway. You need guns, you need <laughs> you yeah. need canned goods. So, but yeah, gold can do well and the world doesn't have to end. We don't have to enter a Mad Max scenario. I mean, gold has had some pretty good decades. And uh, the nice thing about it is it tends to have those good decades when stocks are having bad decades. Yeah, that's, I, I talked to a buddy who's a bit of a, of a gold bug. And that's what I say to him too. I'm like, look, man, you got to defend your gold in the scenario that you're worried about. Yes. When when the roving hordes are coming through, <laughs> yeah. you need to be, they will, uh, the stronger people with the better guns are going to just take your gold. <laughs> yeah. You almost don't want anybody to know that you have the gold in that scenario. It's like, uh, just look elsewhere. <laughs> don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. So for anyone listening, I don't have gold. <laughs> I did in 20, I want to say it was like, 12 or 13, I don't know, it went on a real run and mm -hmm. everyone was talking about it. And I I sort of... Never a good sign. <laughs> I, I got lucky with the timing because a jeweler buddy that I know knew that I had some and he called me up and he was wanting to know if he could buy it. And I was like, man, if this guy's trying to buy it, then like this is a probably not a horrible time to sell it. And then it worked out. So, good timing. Yeah, yeah, that, you know, I've had enough bad timing in my life. I can have some good timing <laughs> also. But I, I like your approach because you're building wealth in, and your retirement account in public. And I think that a lot of the times, at least in the conversations that I have, people are either talking about, you know, what stock is best to own or what factor is best to bet on. And you remind me a little bit of Meb favor where you're embracing some diversification and then layering on some of your personal maybe you know whatever you're looking for in a in a business or a holding for the long term and i i think that's probably where my mind should be going a little bit more yeah i'm i'm a big believer that all of that stuff is unpredictable i've i've tried to predict it many times and then i've after many, many attempts, I finally have admitted defeat on it. Like I have no visibility into whether or not we're going to have a recession, where interest rates are going, where <laughs> what asset class will do best, what stock market around the world will do best. So I am content owning a, a pretty well-rounded asset allocation that should protect me in some multiple economic environments and then stop the brain damage of trying to predict what's going to happen next. And then uh, with my stocks, it's the same thing. It's kind of like I want a stock that'll be recession resistant, try to get it at a margin of safety, and then let that work out over like five or 10 years. But uh, yeah, I'm done trying to trying to play that game. Yeah, the I was looking at Gotham Capital, Greenblatt's ETF. And, you know, a lot of a lot of the value names right now are commodity related, it seems. I, mm -hmm. I may be misspeaking here, but I think it's directionally correct. Mm -hmm. And I get into the, well, you know, how much are you? I, I don't know. The interesting thing about that bet is if the economy continues to chug along like it is, there's a reasonably good 
possibility that those are pretty high torque. But, you know, that's it's just it's so hard for me to look at a lot of those names and say, you know, a Petrobas is one that has come mm-hmm. across as like a cheap stock. And, you know, I know that you can't drive looking in the rearview mirror, but there was like a 10 year period where it generated negative cumulative cash flow. Mm-hmm. And now I hear people say, well, why aren't last year's super normal? I mean, maybe they're not super normal. Maybe on a go forward basis, this is the earning space. Mm-hmm. But if the question is, why aren't we capitalizing last year's earnings? I think there's a huge rebuttable presumption that they're sticky and that the company will do what it should do with those earnings. And I just think that that's a theme that I've seen throughout my perception of the value names right now, which makes me wonder, is it just a macro bet? But I don't know how much it usually is. I think it's a macro bet. (laughs) I think it's like whenever you look at these things, like these commodity companies, I I think commodity cycles are unpredictable. Like right now, what's Okay, what's going to happen next? Say we say the Fed engineers some kind of soft landing and the economy continues to boom. All right, energy is probably going to do all right. Well, let's say on the other hand, these interest rate hikes actually have an impact and global demand plummets and we enter a bad recession. Well, energy is probably going to get its face ripped off. And uh, who the hell knows? And you could buy it on like, you know, one year of good free cash flow and say we're in some kind of nice cycle like maybe it's 2004 where energy had a great few years and it went on for a while but who knows it could be 2008 so my conclusion is i'm going to own small cap value as an asset class which gets exposure to some of that stuff balance it out with some other assets but then when i'm picking stocks i'm not going to pick a stock where i'm exposed to something where i'm at the whims of some macro bet that's where i've landed on it yeah i like that there's a part of me that wonders if, you know, Boston Properties Group is last year's or two years ago's ExxonMobil or something like that, you know, is, and I still have that in me. You know, I still have, <laughs> if if a sector is completely bombed out, and this is probably not the right thought to have, right? The outperformance probably comes from the junkier stuff in the bombed out sector, but mm-hmm. I would prefer to go for the highest quality name in a crappy sector at this stage of life because I don't really want to sell it on a re-rating. Yeah. Right, because I want to defer taxes as long as possible. So I'd, I'd prefer to align myself with the really premium management teams. I mean, what do you think of that? Yeah, I agree. And I mean, the nice thing about those companies is you don't have to get the cycle exactly right. Like over the long run, they tend to compound and increase intrinsic value. Whereas with the other ones, it's a trade and trying to catch the bottom, sell near a top. But you know, you could, for instance, like a home builder, home builders are kind of similar, cyclical kind of thing going on right now. But there's a great home builder in the name of NVR. You know, you could, if you could buy NVR at the wrong stage of the cycle and still do okay over the long run, but I wouldn't buy any other home builder at like the, you know, try to, because then you're just trying to predict where you are in the cycle and trying to buy low and sell high. And uh, that's such a really hard game to play. And I think, I think that's a lot of what value investors aren't willing to necessarily admit is that a lot of it is a trading thing, like doing a swing trade, you're trying to get in and out of things within like six months to a year. It's not this thing where you're buying 
something below intrinsic value and then selling and that's a set amount and you can know when it hits that amount like it's it's a far tougher game and a lot of it is trading and i don't really want to do that well that's part of why i think munger says that it's a better idea to just look for a high quality company that you can park your money in and if you're getting a decent yield on it out of the gate then don't really worry about where it trades in the future. Worry more about whether or not the people that you're betting on are implementing the plan and the understanding that you have. I know that's not exactly what Munger says, but that's what I've taken from him. Yeah, I, I've taken similar insights from him. And before, I didn't real it didn't really resonate with me as much because I looked at the data and I said, "Oh, well, you buy the trashiest stuff imaginable, and then it does really well." But what Munger's talking about is a whole nother level, which is where you're talking about um, risk. You're talking about reducing the risk of trying to play that game. And it's a tough game to play. Once you once you start to get in the weeds and you start to actually do it, you realize how hard it actually is. Yeah, and I'm inclined to think a computer can do it better than I can because my, mm -hmm. my perception of why value works so well is the market overly hates an idea and therefore it gets too puked. And therefore, as a bucket of those bets, they do better over time than the market does. Now, I don't know why. I don't know how I can say that out of one side of my mouth and then say I want to buy any stock because what you're saying when you're buying any stock is that the market hates it a little bit too much. But I feel like some of the businesses in the higher quality bucket are a little bit more predictable. Yeah, I agree. Until they're not, right? And then the stock implodes and then as a basket, they underperform value. But I, man, I don't know. I don't know that I know how to, I don't know that it's suited well for my personality. I think I understand how it works and I think I understand why the books were written on it. But, you know, Buffett, I mean, Buffett had control, right? He liquidated mm -hmm. stuff. He, he made things happen. That's not, he was not just picking value stocks and waiting for the world to reward him, I don't think. No. Yeah, he I mean, and first of all, if you are buying a broad based portfolio of value stocks and waiting for that to re-rate, the best way to do that is to buy one of the value ETFs. Let them do the work for you. Let it happen quantitatively. And you're right with Buffett. Major difference is he's taking active control. He's making sure that that intrinsic value gets realized. He's going in the dumpster mill, shaking up the business, putting his people in place. Like that's much different than saying I'm going to buy a cheap stock and wait for something to happen. Like he, he was the catalyst. He was making sure that these things happened when back when he was doing that sort of thing. Yeah. Do you uh, – what's the way I want to ask this question? Because I, I don't want to – I guess what the question was do you wish that you – you know, your your handle is I is value stock geek. Do you wish that you had identified more with like quality back in the day? Do you regret that you are tied to value stock geek or are you happy with that decision? I'm pretty happy with that decision. I, I think I'm I mean, from my perspective, I'm still buying value stocks and I have and if you're talking about like cheap beaten up stuff, I still have 40 percent of my net worth and small cap value ETF. So I'm still buying cheap stuff. I'm just doing it a little bit more systematically and letting someone else do the work. <laughs> and then um, with with the quality stocks I'm buying, I do wait till they're at a margin of safety. So like going into 2022, I had like 80% of my portfolio in the ETF asset allocation. Only 20% was in actual stocks. And then I waited for 
some good things to pop up like Meta falling and Google falling. And I, I bought some high quality businesses I've had my eye on for a while, but I waited until they were actually value. And that's a lot of what my Substack is. I'm building up this watch list of companies that I know are good compounders over the long run, but I'm not just going out and buying them at any price. I'm waiting until I think they're at an attractive valuation. Yeah, I like that. And I, I think Greenwald said that he... I only did a three-day course, and it's off my memory, so my apologies to Bruce if I'm misquoting him. But I'm almost certain he said that you should have your assets in an ETF and then only switch out when a really good opportunity presents itself, and then you kind of go back into the ETF once the opportunity has closed the gap, which is a totally rational way to do things, in my opinion. And I also think it reduces that FOMO of, like, I'm sitting on cash or too much cash or whatever, whatever. I don't, I mean, even Buffett says he's made bad decisions when he's got too much cash. I mean, if it, if it impacts Buffett, how is it not going to impact me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I agree. Yeah. And I actually developed that approach big to deal with that problem because I know that when I have cash, I'm just going to sit there and I'm going to make some bad decisions. And to sit and, and it's true. I mean, like we laugh at it after 2022 where cash did really well, but most of the time cash actually is trash. So yeah. it's, it's definitely better to have some type of asset that's going to compound over the long run as an alternative. Otherwise, you're going to rush into these situations. And I did that. And that's a lot of that's from experience. Like I did that for a while where I would sit on tons of cash and wait for something to happen in the market. And I developed this approach out of that. And the other aspect of it, too, is when these opportunities pop up, when there are a lot of stocks, good compounders that pop up at decent valuations, it happens fast. So you have to be able to act fast. So when that happens, you can't sit there and um, go through a screen of 30 names and sit there and do research. And, and no, you have to do the research ahead of time, know what you want to own ahead of time. And then when one of those events happens, whether it's March 2020 or December 2018, like in a more limited way or like a 1987 style crash, you can you can move pretty fast and know what you want to own ahead of time. Yeah, I guess the only the only downside to being fully invested is when that happens, you're probably taking on water elsewhere, too. Right. But hopefully less. Well, yeah, and that's the idea behind owning some treasuries, owning some gold. You kind of, if you just hold something like that over the long run, you'll get a pretty steady rate of return and you should lose less than the market when you have one of those events. So like this asset allocation, March 2020 was down 10% while the market was down like 20, 25%. Yeah. 2008, you're down 10%. The market's down 37%. So it doesn't always help. I mean, last year was down about 17%. Market's down over 20% and treasuries got whacked. But most of the time, that's not how it goes. So if you own that mix of assets, you get a more steady rate of return. And then um, when a good opportunity presents itself, I, I can move on that and not have as much losses as the market. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. What do you think about dividends? I talk about dividends. People tell me that I'm a boomer and that I should just <laughs> sell on a on a schedule and create my own synthetic dividend. I don't disagree with them. I think that they're very right in theory, but I think <laughs> the problem with theory is that practice and theory are different in practice. Yeah, that's a hot little topic on Twitter. People love to argue about dividends. Um, my perspective is it's um, not the dividends themselves that matter. 
But when you can find a company that can consistently pay dividends or increase those dividends, it's kind of a hint that you're dealing with a really good business. And I don't think, yeah, so basically, I don't think the dividends are are uh, the key thing you, you want to look for, but it's definitely a sign you're dealing with a great business. And that's probably why they're worth pursuing. And there's evidence for that, actually. The dividend growers do outperform over the long run. There's some studies out there that do it. And then there's ETFs that do that. There's like SCHD is one of the dividend, the Schwab dividend growing ETFs. And that actually has beaten the market over time. So that's where I think it comes into play. I think it comes into play with the quality of the businesses that you're looking at. Yeah, I I can see how there are times when management teams get hamstrung by the dividend. But I also think that there is a reasonable argument that it makes, it generates a level of discipline around capital allocation that Mm -hmm. makes them want to keep the dividend. I've just seen so many people turn off for purchases at the wrong time Mm -hmm. that I favor a consistent capital return strategy over. Now, you know, they can cut the dividend. So maybe I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but I think they're more reluctant to cut the dividend than to slow buybacks. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to that. So with... Companies that maintain dividends even while the business is falling apart, that's always a terrible situation and that never ends well. Uh, maybe maybe someone out there can find an example where that ended well, but I've, I've never I don't been able think to, so. <laughs> to, to figure out one where, uh, you know, Kodak cuts their dividend and the ship is probably <laughs> the ship is probably sinking at that point. Um, as for buybacks, yeah, I, I agree with you. Most companies tend to be very poor with deciding if they're strategic about it. Some people are really good at it. Buffett's obviously great at it. And I think a lot of Buffett's success with buybacks is that he's had some hard rules about it. I forget what his rule was, but it was something like 1.5x book. 1.2, I buy. think. Yeah, he had something like that. He there was a guy stock. that said, I, I, one of my favorite annual meeting moments was a guy said, you didn't buy back stock and it got below 1.2. And without any notes or anything, he, he said, what date? Or, you know, whatever. He was like, we never got below that. And the guy kind of insisted that they that he did. And I'm pretty sure that Buffett was like, well, if you can if you can send me something and prove to me that I'm wrong, I'm willing to be right on the, or, you know, be wrong on this. But I'm, I'm certain we didn't get there. And I'm certain he's certain. Yeah, I wouldn't argue the facts about Berkshire with Warren Buffett. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> That's probably a bad idea. But yeah, he he's good with it. But yeah, most companies will buy back stock when business is booming. And when business is booming, valuations are probably stretched and it's not a great capital decision. So yeah, I'd say if you're a great capital allocator like Buffett, yeah, okay, be strategic about your buybacks. But yeah, generally speaking, I think a steady rate of buybacks is probably decent. You're basically dollar cost averaging. You're going to probably buy back stock when it's cheap. You'll buy back some when it's expensive. But if you're consistent about it, you're you're probably better off. Yeah, I would not I would not be opposed to a company that came out and said, this is, for lack of a better term, our buyback yield. Mm-hmm. Right. So if they were going to pay 500 million in dividends, we're going to buy 500 million in stock. And mm-hmm. that's what we're going to do. We're not going to ramp it when we feel like it. We're not going to cut it when we feel like it, unless we absolutely have to. This is just the strategy that I would be comfortable with. But buybacks are just so pro-cyclical. 
Yeah. Usually most companies are pretty bad at it. I'll give you that. So yeah. And most companies are also bad at capital allocation. Like a lot of people will say, oh, well, they should um, reinvest in in the business. And it's like, well, most of the time they kind of suck at that. So <laughs> it's probably better off returning it to the shareholders um, most of the time. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I I guess, you know, the base rates on companies, they're they're bound to not, most are bound to not do well. So to your point, I think maximizing what they have, but it's it's a very hard thing to ask management teams to not invest in their own company and not grow their influence, for lack of a better term. Yeah, they're very much incentivized to create little empires and grow in ways that might not be the best. Yeah. I know what I was going to ask you about. ETF rebalancing. Mm-hmm. Do you worry at all about that? Because I, I might have an irrational fear or I, I, I need to dig into it. But I, if I'm in small cap value and those companies rip and then I go, then the ETF sells them and buys the next batch of companies. So part of me wonders if you're, if you're losing out on the big winner out of that. But I, I guess it's worth it, right? Over time, it should all even out. Yeah, I'll bet. And I think Toby did work on this where he was saying that um, you could buy a basket of value stocks and then within them, you'll have one that turns into this amazing, like it'll, you'll look like some Kelly better investor where you've got 50% of your portfolio in one stock after year. I mean, that, probably that's a valid way to do it. But I mean, if you think about the small cap value ETFs, what they're doing is they are riding those things from the smallest values and then eventually they're selling them like when they graduate the mid caps or so. And then the uh, the stuff that's falling apart is going to disappear from the portfolio. So they're doing a little bit of that to a limited extent. So I'm comfortable with the way that they do things. I'm, I'm sure they do a better job of it than, than I would. <laughs> yeah, well, that, yeah, that's the point, right? And is there is there a system here that does it better than I can do is the real question. Yeah, at, at, at uh, in my brain, I'm a quant. So <laughs> at heart, I'm a qualitative active uh, stock picker, but my head's with the quants. I think they're probably right about more things. Yeah, it's a disappointing reality to realize that <laughs> computers and quants probably are. You know, I wonder what that does to the world if we all kind of just say the computers are better at this than we are. I don't think that'll ever happen. I think enough people have the desire to try to outperform and have the desire to try to beat the market and pick stocks where I don't think that'll happen. Like back in, um, you know, 2015 through 2018, a lot of people were talking about what if everybody indexes? And then we had this wild speculative craze in 2020 through 2022. And I think that pretty much, in my opinion, that killed that idea because I think that proved there is enough people out there that want to get active and we'll do some wild things and crazy things can still happen in the market. And everybody isn't going to just become a, a boglehead and let it let it go. They're definitely going to try. They're definitely always going to try to to win. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting. I think I don't know. I've tried to think about why I don't fully just turn things over to computers. Part of it's I want to see if my current ideas work out. And part of mm-hmm. it, I think, too, is. I don't know. It gives me a sense of purpose, I almost think. And that's maybe not a great, great reason to do something, but it's also honest. Well, I think it's a great intellectual challenge to go in there and try to figure out these businesses and really try to understand the world. Like I think investing when you're trying to do active investing, you're really getting I'm learning about things every day when I read a 10K that I would never 
know about before, about businesses I would never understand. And it's cool when you can learn those things, apply that knowledge and make some money. And that doesn't have to be all your money. You know, you can do what I'm doing, like have some set aside that's your safe money. That's the ration, quote unquote, rational money in the ETFs and the quant strategies, and then actually try to apply, actually try to apply these ideas and try to learn about the world. Like it's, it's, it's the best game that's out there. And I, I completely understand why you wouldn't want to give it up. What are you going to do or what are you doing? And I apologize for not knowing this answer, but I don't with your Substack and kind of what's your what's your goal with that product for people? Okay, so I started my blog a few like back in 2016, and I had no idea what I wanted to do with it. It was just I want to I have this desire to write things and interact with people. I tried to monetize it. I tried to put ads on it, and I made like a couple Dairy Queen meals out of it. <laughs> it didn't go so well. And then I saw Substack is doing people are doing well on Substack, so I turned on paid subscriptions. And um, that's been going pretty well. And it's the first time I've really ever made money through this blogging thing. And on the Substack, I try to deliver value to the subscribers by basically I write up a company every single week. I pick a company that I think is a high quality company. And then the goal is, is try to determine through my checklist, is this actually a high quality company? You get some info about the moat, about the history of the business, about its prospects. And then I get into the valuation. Is this a decent valuation? Most of the time it's not. And then it's added to the watch list. And and then uh, occasionally I'll come across something where it actually is cheap. Then I'll send out updates on that watch list showing you here's the quality companies on the watch list. Here's where their valuations currently are. And then I provide updates on my actual personal portfolio where I'm buying these stocks. And then on top of that, I recently started a podcast where I release episodes behind a paywall for about a month, and then I'm releasing them after the paywall. So, uh, yeah, subscribers get that, get those analysis, oh, get those analysis of companies. They get the podcast behind the paywall, and yeah, it's starting to go pretty well. And it's the first time I've ever actually made money from this little hobby of mine, and uh, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, that's neat. I, I like the idea of a podcast that you pre-release and then release later. Yeah, that's that's the idea. Um, I, I'm just trying. I was just trying to figure out ways through the Substack. You know, how can I deliver the most value to people who are who are paying for the subscription? And it's really cool. Substack's been an amazing tool for creators to make money. There, there really weren't many outlets for bloggers to make significant money. You could run ads on your website. But you really don't make a lot of money doing that. So this is a it's a very, very cool thing that yeah. they've created. Yeah, it's amazing to me that Twitter blew the opportunity. But I should not be amazed. I should expect it <laughs> at this point. Yeah, I mean, this could have been Twitter's thing. They Ugh. could have um, they could have absolutely done something like this. And they seem to have completely blown the opportunity. And or I mean, bought Sub Substack, right? What they what they buy? What was that thing that I did for a little while? I forget. Everybody forgets. That's the problem. <laughs> but Spaces could have probably moved into a podcast kind of thing. They could have absolutely had a newsletter biz. They could have bought Substack. And now they're trying to kill Substack, which sucks. Yeah. Well, can you can you I think that's over, right? You can link now, can't you? Or no? It seems to be working. 
I know that what I had to do was I had to register a URL. I used to have like value.stockgeek.substack.com. I set it up where it's now securityanalysis.org to try to get around that issue. That worked a little bit. But I do notice whenever you post like an external link on Twitter, it does get much less engagement and hits than it used to. And yeah. it definitely gets way less engagement or hits than if I just post a text tweet. So I do think they're probably doing something to suppress people from leaving the website, which is understandable if they have a very like short-term point of view. But I would think if you really want to grow Twitter, you want to kind of encourage people who are heavy users of Twitter and are using your product for other things. If you just make it where you can't promote anything on Twitter, well, then I think that the heavy users that are putting content out there will start to use it less. Yeah. I think there's an element of some of us are addicted to it. So I'm not <laughs> sure that we'll put out less, but I, I do, I do tend to, I agree with you from a strategic standpoint, for sure. What do you think that Twitter, do you think it's been a positive or a negative for you overall? It's a mix. So I would say overall, it's very positive. It's 80% positive. I get to talk to people like you. I get I get to talk to people like Toby. I can put my ideas out there. I mean, 20 years ago, I would just be writing in like a, a journal by myself. <laughs> like, I'd be probably be doing the exact same thing, but no one would know about it. And I wouldn't have had an opportunity to even make a sub stack or make money from it. So that stuff's cool. And I get to talk to super interesting people and learn from them. I'd say the 20% that's bad is... Getting addicted to it, and I'm definitely addicted to Twitter, just like everybody else. And you get on Twitter and you read all of this market news and you see all these ideas that are out there. And I think it's probably bad for an investment process to see the macro opinions of 20 people every single day. It's probably not good for an investment process. Most investment processes, I think, work out better if you don't pay attention to any of that stuff. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Though, I, you know, I don't know. I think I was a guy who had my head in the sand and thought that I knew all the answers. And I think that at a minimum, engaging with people on Twitter has made me realize that I may still know the questions that are right for me to ask, but I don't think that my questions are right for everybody. And I'm not convinced that they're the right questions, if that makes any sense. No, I think that makes sense. Like you definitely are exposed to perspectives you would never be exposed to before by being on Twitter. And I think it is good for you. And there are definitely things you can do to eliminate the bad of it. Like I don't have Twitter on my phone. I only have it on a desktop. So I'll go on to it and I'll say, okay, I'm going to give myself an hour of Twitter time and then shut it off. Yeah, <laughs> That's one thing you can do. And then you can kind of get the best of both worlds. You get exposed to the perspectives, you meet cool people, interesting people who can teach you things. And then uh, you don't kind of get sucked into. Sometimes I, I tweeted once, Twitter is financial Twitter is Mr. Market's inner monologue. Like you're basically letting Mr. Market scream into your brain. So yeah, <laughs> it's probably not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I, it's, it's really interesting. But like, you know, I, I would not understand how growth guys look at the world i you know i this is probably gonna mm -hmm. sound really stupid to somebody but i heard somebody said to me just really simply they said you know stocks tend to go up when things are improving and i and i think that a lot of times the brain that i used to have at least if something was trading at like a three percent free cash flow yield 
and it, it kept going up. I'd be like, well, how is this multiple justified? Mm-hmm. And, you know, now I understand a little bit better. I I do wonder if some of these thoughts have been taken too far, but I also don't think every business is endowed to trade at a 10 times multiple in perpetuity. I agree. So, you know, it's all, it's the nuance where life is lived. And I, I think that engaging in Twitter made me smarter. Yeah, I think we've gone on a very similar journey. So I always used to assume if I saw any company at a high multiple, like this is a bubble and a bunch of degenerates own it. And now I'm, I know more where I say, well, that's not always the case. <laughs> it's not always a bunch of degenerates in a high multiple stock. Sometimes there might actually be something to it. And I shouldn't just arrogantly assume I'm smarter than the market. And there is some validity to the growth point of view. Back in the day, we were probably pretty similar. I'd say like, you look at the back test and the data doesn't verify any of this. And all of these people are just ridiculous. And they don't know what they're doing. And um, no, a lot of them do and know what they're doing. And they have they have very good points. Yeah. And I think I can relate it to real estate where I think I understand things a little bit better because it's like the concrete world. Which stocks are too, but they're kind of a derivative of the concrete world, even though they're not. But anyway, class A real estate to me that has tenants that are employed at very good like credit quality companies, the tenants mm-hmm. are highly educated, they're able to switch, they're probably going to be earning more next year. I understand paying more for that building when the rent can be pushed and the tenant base is likely to pay you back. And then you get into other areas of real estate. And I'm sure down sort of at the slumlord level, you can argue the same thing because somebody needs to live there. And But in between those levels are maybe harder questions, maybe not. But I understand why they trade at different levels. And I don't think that there's a world where class A and class C should trade at the same cap rate. I just don't think that that's... Like, that's not where my mind would think things should go. And when I started after reading, you know, when I started investing in stocks, after reading the studies and whatnot, I guess for some reason, I just kind of thought like everything should trade at, you know, a, <laughs> a 10 times PE or whatever the stupid metric is that I made up. Yeah. And it was so flawed. Yeah, there's definitely a mentality among value investors that I used to have where you think, you take that quote to heart, in the long run, everything is a toaster. So you assume there's no, no business actually has any quality, that in the long run, everything's a zero, and that you're just, you want to pick them up as cheap as possible. And that's just as reality. Like Microsoft is not the same as some concrete company trading below book. Like, you know, like the, there are quality businesses. And I do think it's possible to identify them. And there are things that should trade at richer valuations than, than other things. Every business is not created equal, just like you mentioned with property. Like it's, it's definitely not the way that the world actually works. Yeah. And I think I used to say, and maybe I still do. And if I do, then I'm not articulating my thoughts properly. But I think I used to say, well, in these quality companies, there's only one way out. And if the culture deteriorates or whatever, boy, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. And in the cheaper companies, I used to assume that there was two ways out. And I think that assumption's flawed. 
Because if stuff starts breaking in those companies, they're going to go down in value too. And it's not like there's just some bidder that's out there that can't wait to buy something. But I guess I just kind of thought it had to exist. And it's kind of, it sounds so silly to come out of my mouth, but you know, I guess over time you learn. Yeah, we all go through the same thing. I think all value investors, anyone who is like reads Graham and Buffett and says, this is the truth. I think you all go through this cycle. And I certainly went through it where you take Graham to heart and, and then you learn some Buffett and then you might try some other things. And yeah, I think eventually you start to see the way things actually are. I think a major limitation of that view of the world is um, you start to discount the idea of risk in terms of the returns for value. So I think like when I when I was more hardcore with the stuff, I would say, well, there is no risk. If it's if I'm buying it at half of intrinsic value, there's less risk than in this situation. But I think a better way to look at value is to look at it as like a distressed property or to look at it as like a high yield bond where, yeah, a part of your return is you're taking on a bigger risk. And you can see that in the volatility of these portfolios where yeah, a major component of that return is is taking on some extra risk and value investors aren't always cognizant of that. I think that risk can be mitigated if you can obtain control and you're competent when you have control and you buy it cheap enough. I agree. But as a minority shareholder, I think there's a lot of risk when people are making good money and probably not going to get the same gig that they just got and have a lot of reasons to protect what their current lifestyle is. And I don't think they care very much if the stock's at half a time book or five times earnings or whatever, you know, when it means that they might have to give up the club membership and their kid might have to transfer schools and whatever. A lot of agency issues, that's for sure. Yeah. And I mean, they certainly don't care what some blogger with a brokerage account thinks. So yeah. <laughs> what shot do I have of <laughs> convincing them to change their ways? <laughs> well, and like, look, I do think that that these thoughts, the market knows too, and maybe that's why the stocks sell off too much. But that goes back to our ETF discussion. I'd rather capture it through a computer. Yes. And in a broadly diversified way where you're going to have some some winners that that make it up. And then you're then you're actually getting access to what the studies actually show. So everybody is converted to this religion when you look at the data and you see the data in the studies. Well then let an ETF do it. Let a small cap value ETF do it. Let Wes Gray or Toby Carlisle do it. <laughs> like, like, you know, there's there's better methods to do it. And then not only that, but those things are way more tax efficient. Yeah. Than realizing all of these gains and, and having to do all of this by yourself. Yeah. Do you think, so if I'm listening to this and I'm identifying with value or whatever, does your service help me understand which ETFs and why? Like, can I ask you questions about, hey, you pick this ETF. Why did you pick this ETF? Like, what is, what level of service do people get from your Substack and you as a creator or so the articles in the substack aren't really about asset allocation principles it's more about what i'm doing with the active portfolio and what companies i'm looking at but i also have podcast episodes where i'll answer questions from the audience and that's actually a frequent thing that pops up like why are you using this etf instead of that etf so um yeah if anyone wants to reach out to me with any questions i actually record episodes every week and i go through a list of questions and i'll, I'll try to answer them all. And a lot of them do have to do with asset allocation stuff versus my my active portfolio. Yeah. Asset allocation is so important, man. So important. Mm -hmm. 
I talk about him a lot, but Jason Buck, the way he, I, it's just some of the way that he talks, I hear him a lot in my brain. And I know I've said it on this pod before, but he's like, you know, I look at you guys talking about which stocks you want, and it just feels like you're arguing over stuff that doesn't actually matter in the grand scheme of things because he's he's so asset allocation <laughs> and beta focused. And I think there's some merit in that. Um, it's the it's the main muscle movement that helps most people. I think like most people are probably better off with a diversified portfolio of multiple asset classes. You own some treasuries, you own some stocks, you own some global stocks. You might want to pivot to value. You might want to own some gold. Everybody's different. But um, if you look at the performance of portfolios like Ray Dalio's All Seasons or um, the Harry Brown's permanent portfolio, I think most people would be better off in an approach like that versus what actually happens, which is like your average investor gets a 1% rate of return. You'd probably be better off with maybe like a 5 or 6% rate of return in one of those portfolios with less volatility where you don't have to panic when something wild is going on in the market where you're not trying to predict what's going to happen next. Like you're covered under a lot of different situations and you should grow your capital over time. And then, you know, you can decide how aggressive you want to be, how you want to approach it. Do you want to own a three fund portfolio? Do you want to own something less aggressive or more? Like that's debates everybody can have individually about their own circumstances. But from a personal finance standpoint, I think that's way more important and a way better game to play than going out and trying to, uh, you know, find the next hot growth stock or trying to flip value stocks or doing whatever. And most people don't have the interest or the time to do that. Like I'm into it because I'm like a junkie for this stuff. But <laughs> I think most people are not interested in reading a 10K. They want to have, tell me what ETFs to buy and I'm going to move on with my life and do something I'm interested in. Yeah. I was really into it. I think I'm still into it. I'm not sure how into it I am though. I, I kind of, I don't know. I'm at a weird point in life. But, you know, the nice thing about owning companies that I don't mind owning is that if I go through a period where I'm not so into it, it's not the end of the world. Yes. Whereas with a lot of like, if you're into deeper value stuff, if you're into maybe less modi businesses, you're going to like microcaps or something, you better be watching that portfolio. You better be, you better be making your moves when something happens. You can't just coffee can that and leave it and let it be. Um, yeah. It's definitely something you need to be super active and interested in. So it's definitely not for everybody. Yeah, it's it's a tough game. And I think that some of the studies, I don't know, there's clear there's some pros that are listening to this that are probably like, yes, of course, it's tough. But I, I just think that when you're reading the the studies, it's easy to trick yourself into into thinking that it's not that hard. And it is. And I mean, the studies show that I mean, you look at the SPIVA data, only about 5% of investors actually outperform their benchmark over the long run. So I think it is silly to go into getting active and your goal is like, I'm going to outperform the market. Like, I think it's almost a silly goal. Like, I think if you're doing active investing, it should be because you enjoy it because you enjoy learning about these companies. But if it's just solely, I want to make as much money as possible, like, well, the odds are really tilted against you. And all the evidence bears it out. And everybody has their deep rationalizations for why that's true. And but they never really want to seem to admit that maybe most people don't outperform because it's really hard to outperform. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of a, a wild goal. No one really wants to touch on that, but that's probably the truth. Yeah. And Munger has talked about that too recently, where he talked about he basically said what the data says only 5% of investors can actually outperform the market. Yeah. And I also, I don't know that it's any easier to choose a factor that you get in and out of. 
Oh, no. Yeah, I think if you're going to be a factor investor, you pick your factor and stick with it. Do not do not try to predict when growth or value is going to turn or no. Pick your pick your battles ahead of time and say, like, this is the factor I'm going to own. Here's how I'm going to own it. And that's the end of the story. And maybe rebalance, right? Like a dynamic rebalancing sure. strategy makes a lot of sense to me. So you're allocating more to value as it underperforms more, but or or growth if that day ever comes, right? As growth underperforms. Yeah, but the idea that you're going to do like large cap growth in the 90s and then you're going to do small cap value in the 2000s and then you're going to pivot back to large cap growth in 2012, like no one can actually do that. So yeah. <laughs> you might as well. It's fine to own both, maybe um, rebalance it once a year and that's probably a better approach for, for most people. Yeah. I thought it was funny when I was talking to Morgan Housel and he said that people love his book and then they find out that he indexes and they're let down. But I think that that's such a maybe a better thing to do than be let down is ask why. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Like, I, and I know, I think most institutions would probably be better off picking like a diversified asset allocation strategy. Like there's the pension manager in Nevada, Steve Edmondson. He picks a diversified portfolio of some asset classes and goes with that. And he's in the rankings of like the top Ivy League schools that are doing all kinds of like fancy cool guy stuff like venture capital and private equity and everything else. And that approach does fine. So it's probably fine for most people too. Yeah. Did you grow up thinking about investing a lot? I mean, I know you said that you got the bug when you were younger, but was your family a family that discussed investing or was this sort of a self-found affliction? This was a self-found affliction. So my family has zero interest in investing. <laughs> I remember sitting, looking at the newspaper with my dad and um, I'm like, what do these numbers mean in like the stock section? And he said, uh, well, really smart people can figure that out and make a lot of money. And I think once I heard that, I'm like, that sounds amazing. Like you can just... <laughs> Like if you just, you know, do some homework that just with your mind, you can make some money. I'm like, I was always transfixed with that idea. And then um, when the 90s came along and I was a teenager and I saw what was happening in the stock market, I was endlessly fascinated by that. And I tried to learn all I could about it and get involved in it and open up a little brokerage account and try to play around with it. But yeah, it just uh, transfixed me the moment I heard about it. It was not from family or anything. It was just a purely self-driven endeavor. The 90s were a wild time. The, the yes. That 97 to 2000 run was, I mean, it got, it got incrementally more nuts, but I remember... Uh, yeah, I, I remember kids at the library pretty much day trading on their accounts. So I guess, you know, the more, I mean, that was high schoolers. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that was me. Not <laughs> not supposed to do it, right? But but we did. But I would argue at least it wasn't on a phone with confetti popping when when it happened. But you know, I had a I had a disappointing interview with somebody that I wanted to interview for a long time, and I never saw the light of day. But Mostly because I, I had COVID and my brain was awful in that interview. But his point was he thought that the more things that people could trade, the better. And I was so upset to hear him say that. But I also understand why. I mean, the guy's a market maker at, at heart. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Then I started to reflect on it. And I don't know where I've settled on all this stuff. I do know that I've settled on businesses owe their customers a duty of, of customer service at a minimum. Mm -hmm. That I'm certain. Well, 
that I'm certain I won't change my opinion on. The what should be allowed to trade and what's right in public financial markets. I, I'm a lot less convinced of those answers than I think I once was. Well, I, I know that when I was doing that stuff as a teenager and in my early 20s, I was actually trying to get constantly get approval for options trading. And at the time, I was extremely frustrated they wouldn't give it to me. Yeah. And now I thank the Lord that I never <laughs> I never got access to that. Yeah. And yeah, I shouldn't have had access to that. I was some, you know, 20 year old kid with like a few thousand bucks. Like I should not have had access to like these high octane contracts. And I'm also glad they weren't giving me confetti when I bought things. If I got confetti when I bought things, I mean, that's not something that's conducive to good investing results. Like good investing, I, it's all true. Like everything you read from Jack Bogle and William Bernstein, it's all 100% true. Most people are better off with less activity and, and broad-based funds and keeping their expenses low. And uh, the more that you treat Wall Street like a casino, the higher the probability that you're going to lose it all. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it should be really hard to get margin, right? I don't think yes. it should be I don't think it should be a income-based thing. I think that's wrong, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I I think that if you can demonstrate that you deserve it, then you should have access. But I think that the ability to demonstrate that you deserve it should not be easy. Yes, I completely agree. Yeah, it shouldn't be easy to get access to any of these things. And it's like, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't give a Ferrari to like some 16 year old, you know, yeah. <laughs> you, shouldn't, you shouldn't give these like high octane investing approaches to just anybody. And frankly, even the people with money, even the people who know what they're doing, get in enough trouble with this stuff. So yeah. what chances does uh, someone who doesn't have a lot of experience or money do it? I think a lot of those, those accredited investor rules a lot of people complain about them, but I kind of think it's basic. It's not saying you're so rich, you're so sophisticated that you can do this. It's saying you're so rich that you can afford to do something stupid. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's really what it's saying. And it's probably for the best that we have those rules in place. Yeah, I have some exposure to multifamily apartments through an LP structure, which we'll see how that all works out. But I like the group that I have that in. And I, I guess you could maybe get that similar type exposure in REITs, I guess. Mm -hmm. So maybe maybe there's products out there that, that enable people to participate without necessarily participating. But but I am not I am not in favor of closing off like private equity. It would have been nice if I, I, sorry to talk like this, but my first thought is it would have been nice if Main Street had an opportunity to participate. My second thought, as I was saying that, was, well, they are at least the ones that are invested in pension funds. The pension mm -hmm. funds are doing it on their behalf. Mm -hmm. And that's probably a reasonable way that the world should work. But I don't know. On the other hand, you have the work of like Dan Rasmussen, who has shown that money has flooded private equity. Valuations aren't what they used to be. It probably won't return any more than public markets in the future. So yeah, by the time it gets to it gets to us, it's probably over. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it might not be such a great thing for us anyway. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, the only nice thing about a, and this is really stupid, but it is true. The, the nice thing about private investments is you don't see the mark all the time. Yes. And you, and you don't have anything to like, you can't do anything in it. Even if you could see the mark, you're locked in unless you're going to sell at some heavy discount. So there is some tie yourself to the mass pole. Yeah. Meb Faber had a cool idea where there could be some kind of ETF where you are not allowed to sell it. And that's probably 
that would probably work out better for most people. I like Meb. Meb's a smart dude. Yeah, I've I've learned a lot from reading his stuff. Yeah. He's also a cool guy to hang with. I wish I could kind of be Meb, but you know, <laughs> I don't know. I'll work on me instead. But he he is uh he's neat, man. Entrepreneur, like fun guy, super smart. I pre I like how he preaches diversification. He's one of the few vo voices out there that that at least I see that's doing it right. Hyper concentration got so popular, and even when it was popular, he was still saying diversification. So <laughs> it's nice. Yeah, just own five stocks. And you're <laughs> There's a lot. Of, a lot of yeah, just got to pick the right ones. Right. Right. Yeah. It was wild to see the funds that did super well, and then and then did not do super well. That concentration's a hell of a drug on the way up. On the way down, I hope you got to know who you really are. Yeah, it's it's a very hard game to play. Even if you're right, you're going to experience drawdowns that will make you question that approach. With my active account, I'm I'm, pr I'm fairly concentrated, but I'm looking to own about 15 stocks. But I'm also not buying like 15 hyper growth situations or 15 deep value situations. I'm buying like Google and, <laughs> you know, and snap on and companies like that when they're a little bit beaten up, but they're What's at least snap on snap on their, um, their tools manufacturer. Huh. So they basically have contracts in place with most automotive shops throughout the country where they'll, they have trucks that will actually like deliver tools to an auto body shop. Like if it's something breaks, they yeah, can immediately yeah. get on the scene and, and deliver the products, but they have a pretty big moat and very, very long history, like over a hundred years and they do pretty well. Do they do any M&A? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. They've, just they've like tuck-ins to densify the routes and whatnot. Over the years they have. Yeah. But that's a, a 100, like that's the kind of things I look for, like really solid old companies or at least companies with I think what are very defensible moats I'm not buying I'm not concentrating like into some super speculative situations I'm trying to find compounders when they're a little bit beaten up yeah well that makes perfect sense to me I I was a dummy that owned meta at 350 but uh thankfully <laughs> I didn't own a lot and then I was smart enough to I mean I bet I bet it when it was lower and that's nice I, it's funny though, I, when I say I bet it, I probably, I think I took my position from like 1% to 4%. And now that, you know, it's doubled, it's like, oh, why didn't I, why didn't I do more? But easy to say in hindsight, not so easy when it looks like the stock's going to 50. Yeah, I bought Meta. I bought Meta when it was, um, I bought it February of last year. So I'm a little bit down, but I've basically hung on to it through all the swings and, and kept it going. I wish I waited a little bit more. I got a little bit too. That was something I learned last year. Like when something's in a drawdown, don't get so excited right away that because I've been wanted for years to own it. And then I was finally like, ah, this is my shot. It's finally cheap enough. It's down to it was down to like 12 times like an EVE, but multiple. And I rushed into it. So yeah, sometimes I think it pays the weight a little bit. It's definitely a lesson I learned last year. But hey, positions worked out great so far. I'm, I'm content to hold it for five to 10 years and let it play out. I saw a headline and I haven't confirmed it. So apologies if I'm spreading fake news, but I heard that they are cutting a lot of their content moderate or a lot of the job cuts came mm -hmm. out of the content moderation team. You have any thoughts on that? I don't know. On one hand, that sounds great. They're going to cut costs. On the other hand, a lack of content moderation got them into a lot of trouble in the past. So I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. So I'm not sure where I stand on that. Yeah. I'm not either. I I am convinced, and uh, by convinced, I mean 70% sure, that 
the amount of content that AI is going to send into the to the ether and the internet, I almost think content moderation is going to be completely impossible. I already think it was hard. I think it's going to be really, really, really hard. Yeah, it's going to get really hard. I agree with that. And it's kind of scary to think about what will happen. Like, I'm definitely in the camp that thinks America was better off when we listened to Walter Cronkite and read the newspaper. Yeah, I kind <laughs> of am too. At least we were all we were all misinformed on the same lines. Right. So there was common ground. <laughs> yeah. And now it's like people are so people get into their social media feed and they see their content, they see people they agree with, and they can convince themselves of like anything. Like, it's kind of amazing. Like my more liberal friends, when I talked to them during like the Trump era, they were convinced that the economy was falling apart. It's like, well, that's not what's actually happening with the economy right now. It's doing okay. And then today you'll have Republicans who are convinced that that the economy is completely falling apart because Biden's in charge. And it's like, well, inflation's up, but unemployment's pretty low. But anyway, we used to agree on that. Like the president would get kicked out of office if the economy was bad and everybody would know, hey, the economy is bad right now. And we can't even agree on that. Like we can't even agree on like the basic facts on the ground. It's all about like what news channel you're listening to 24-7. I, I think there has always been disagreement, but but along I think to support what you're saying, the middle, like there was a Pew Center study that came out that showed this, that basically we used to have smaller tails and a larger hump in the middle, and now it's just become two humps on the poles, and the middle is the the really small the ground makes me worried. The AI thing that I heard that really freaked me out the other day was a woman got a phone call from someone who she swore was her daughter. And it was like, yeah, like these people have kidnapped me or whatever. And then her daughter was still on a ski trip. I mean, dude, if you just need three seconds of somebody's voice, I I mean, I'm screwed. I'm just going to tell my family, if you get that call, just let them kill me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's terrifying. I, I, I don't think that we're prepared. We we haven't adapted to the social media era yet. Like I don't think we've we've figured out a way to deal with that and have our, our, our population like where people are confident in what's going on. And now you're just adding a whole new layer of insanity to it. So yeah, it's it's pretty bad when people don't don't agree on like anything and there's no reality and I don't know. I don't know how it's all going to play out. It's pretty scary to me. I will say with Facebook, it is plausible to me. Like if Zuckerberg was like, look, we poured a ton of money into AI and the AI is going to be able to replace these people in the content moderation. I would say, okay, well, that's that's possible. I could see that scenario because they have done a lot of work on that side of the business. Yeah, that's true. Either way, I just wouldn't want to be Zuckerberg. Like it's, uh, I don't mind owning the stock, but he's got a. I think he's got a horrible situation where no matter what he does, he's going to get dragged in front of Congress and get yelled at by them. Yeah, man. <laughs> Easiest way in the world to get hated is to own a social media company. Yeah, I do not understand why Elon did that. Because I mean, there's there's two sides of the coin. It's like, okay, free speech. Well, that has issues too. You can't just have people posting fake news or suicide videos or god knows what what they're going to post in there and you can't have people like actually pushing misinformation like you can't have people actively trying to manipulate elections by posting things that they know are false and then on the other hand you know you don't want to be heavy-handed with it and and like what's the right balance of that 
I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> but I certainly don't want to be one of the people who has to make that decision and then get yelled at by one of the two sides of the coin where there's the people who want hyper moderation and the people who want the internet to be 4chan. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who knows? Like, who knows what the right balance is? Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think there's easier problems in life to solve. But look, he understands Twitter as well as anybody. He's as addicted as anybody. And I think he's, you know, they say Tesla doesn't spend any money on marketing, at least before Twitter happened for him. I think it's impossible to argue that he did not. They had a lot of a lot of unpaid marketing through his Twitter feed that was very, very beneficial to that company. Yeah, that probably helped. I don't know if it's helping now because you think about like the typical Tesla person is probably I agree with you. left of center and um you know, he's becoming very associated with the right. So, I don't know if it's good at this point for him. Yeah. I would have been nervous and would remain nervous if I was a Tesla shareholder that that you know, he's risking some blowback, but I don't know. I guess they might say the cars are so good. I don't the cars are really fun, but I don't know that they're that good over what's coming out. Yeah, Tesla's definitely um in the too hard pile for me. I mean, on one level, like I as a value investor, I'm just intrinsically against it. But um on the other hand, you do have a very loyal base of customers and a very devoted base of shareholders and I'm certainly not going to go out and short it, but uh, yeah. I'm also not going to buy it. <laughs> Shareholder bases are something that I've come to appreciate a lot more. You know, the the leeway that to give management the ability to work through problems. And Netflix, I think, is a good example of, of a shareholder base that's given management the leash to make some changes. And, you know, we'll see whether or not the stock works. But I think at a minimum, they're able to execute their business plan without getting shareholder pushback too much. That's true. Every company has its unique base of shareholders. Buffett was actually pretty much ahead of the curve on that. When yes. He refused to split the stock that I want a certain person, to, kind of person to own my stock. And yeah, you never really, I never really appreciated that when I first heard of it. But yeah, when you think about it, you're right. Every company does have its unique base. And if you get the right base of people, you know, it can definitely help you. I mean, I've heard people throw some shade at Gainer for like trying to become I don't I don't think another Berkshire is the right way to say it, but to cultivate like the same shareholder base or whatever, it's it's just something that I hear. And it's like, why would you not do that? It's part of his job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would say he he wants to have a good base of long term minded shareholders. He doesn't want to have people who are freaking out every quarter over this quarter's results. Like those aren't the kind of people you want to have to respond to. <laughs> you want to have people like like Buffett's shareholders, like Berkshire shareholders, where they're willing to look to the long term and realize, you know, not every quarter is going to be smooth sailing and have a long term mindset and be in agreement with your basic strategy. That's definitely, definitely helpful. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, it's Berkshire was a controlled company. And I, I don't know, Buffett, he's turns out he was really smart. What, what do you what yeah. do you know? <laughs> every time I and, you know, every time I go back and I think about something he did and some just like that decision never to split the stock. I never understood why he did that when I first read about it. And now that I'm learning more about the market, I'm starting to realize it. And that, that happens to me with so many things with Buffett where I'll read something. I read something when I'm in like 98 and I glossed over it and now I reread it. And I'm like, oh, my God, some profound yeah. insights that he that he had. Yeah, uh, sometimes, you know, people, uh, the other thing that people like to do is if you throw up 
Buffett quotes on Twitter, you're bound to get somebody that's like, oh, that's not insightful. But sometimes mm-hmm. I just listen to this stuff and I, I send out the tweet to remind myself because I listen to the same thing over and over again and learn different different insight every time. Yeah. The only change is my brain, right? He He's not <laughs> changing how he said it. It's a recording. But uh, sometimes the student is able to learn a little bit more. Yeah. And it's amazing how far ahead of the curve he was, too, because like a lot of people today will say like, oh, Buffett was just a factor investor who levered it up. But he understood the factor before anyone else did. Like he was doing this in, you know, 1970, like when the paper didn't come out till 1992. Like he, that's how smart he is. He yeah. had so much of the stuff figured out ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. He's probably exploiting some other factor right now. And he's probably a little too big for that factor to have a meaningful impact, which we'll find out in 20 more years what he was, right? Yeah, that's probably true. The, yeah. There will be some paper written about, oh, well, this is what the strategy was. And yeah, okay, he had it figured out Yeah, <laughs> 20 years before you guys did. <laughs> yeah, not not a bad strategy to use underwriting profits to deploy into one of the greatest energy companies that's been created. Yeah. I, I took issue, Some some people have said that he's not a great business builder. But Berkshire Hathaway Energy is a real, real legitimate business. It's impossible yes. to argue to me that he hasn't built at least one real, real good one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think he's smart enough to not build a business from like the ground up and like try to say like, I'm going to, but to assemble a bunch of good assets together and know that they have decent managers and know that they're going to have yeah. these decent synergies like that's a genius like that's that's a guy who really knows knows what he's doing yeah and obviously sees too but i i don't know it's sometimes people love to shit, take shots at the king i hope i live long enough and i'm successful enough that people take shots at me i'll get you engagement on twitter yeah well. <laughs> when, you, when you like that's the game i think a lot of people are playing like they're not really sincere in their in their hate it's it's more of like i know this will get a lot of attention yeah that's fair <laughs> that's fair I I have I wanted a lot of engagement. I still obviously I still enjoy it, but it's amazing. I think I think you go through a maturity curve on on the Twitter machine, and now now less engagement may actually be more. But I don't know. I you know if you if you it's a great lead source. Yes, I mean what what what's happening to me right now with my Substack is something I would have never imagined to be possible. Like it's a good little side hustle now, and that certainly wouldn't be possible without generating engagement on Twitter. But yeah, you definitely don't want to be um, totally go to the dark side with it. There's some people on there who you can tell everything they tweet is just engagement paid. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't, you don't want to completely go in that direction either. But yeah, it's, it's definitely good to get some engagement and get some people looking at your stuff. Well, I'm glad your Substack has gotten some traction because you're one of the guys that has you've got a very consistent message. And I appreciate how intellectually honest you are with how you approach things. And I and I like that you don't come across as a guy that is saying, like, follow me, I know all the answers. And you're more, I perceive you to be more somebody that's learning in public. And as somebody that's trying to do the same thing, I have a, an affinity for what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's 100% what I'm trying to do. Like, I started that blog, and I had no idea the um, evolution I'd go through as an investor, but the whole, idea, like when I started the blog, the idea was I'm going to post about my portfolio, see what happens and post my thesis. And what it's turned into is like a whole evolution of learning about new things, learning about asset allocation, learning, getting better at looking at businesses. And I just do it all in public. And yeah, I'm, I'm 
constantly learning and, and changing my mind about things. And I certainly am not the guy with, with the answers. Yeah, well, nor am I. So uh, people can come to the two of us to get more questions and answers. But hopefully, hopefully they can piggyback on some of the questions that we've been asking. And hopefully we can make some people smarter in the process. And I think that's a foundation of the win-win-win. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for stopping by. I appreciate it. And I'm glad that we got this on the calendar and that I... I said, let's just kick it 30 minutes instead of two weeks because I've enjoyed this very much. Yeah, this was an awesome time. Thanks for having me on.